All right, welcome back. Um, we do have Wednesday night next week, the 15th, and then um, the 22nd and 29th we will be off, uh, off for Wednesday nights. When we come back in January, um, we will spend the month of January in the book of Ruth. Uh, part of what I'm going to try and do is encourage folks, and you can uh, do this as well, just come try Wednesday nights out for one month. Uh, you know, you don't have to commit to the whole, the whole uh, shebang, it's going to be four weeks Come try it out with me for four weeks and see how it goes, um, and we'll be, we'll be into the book of Ruth uh, in January. So, two more weeks, and then we'll be off this week and next week. So let's uh, open with a word of prayer, and then, then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we, um, we come into this place as we do every week, and we acknowledge that the subject matter of tonight's passage is shocking and challenging. It is grotesque, and yet it is part of your revealed word to us. And so tonight we come as your people seeking to understand who you are and seeking to grow in our understanding in a way that creates transformation in our lives. So we come with great care, seeking out your wisdom, Holy Spirit, coveting your presence, not only in this time, but in our lives and in our conversations tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last Friday, I woke up at 5.45, and I was thinking about Carla's question around this idea of checks, checks that we place in our lives, check, checks and balances that we place in our lives. And I, and I felt uh, unsettled because I hadn't really, in some ways I hadn't really addressed the, <laughs> the duh um, that I probably should have, uh, but the greatest check that we can place in our lives is to get to know who God is on a more intimate level. And so, it's a little bit <laughs> like, you know, if you have a question about somebody, and you go talk to all their friends, but you don't actually go talk to that person, you're like, well, why don't you just go ask that person what they might like because they'll probably tell you versus speculating from all their friends. And so I, I felt like I should have said, well, the number one check is to be in an intimate, active, daily personal relationship with Jesus Christ, digging into Scripture in finding a way to have a more intimate connection with the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can be more recognizable and noticeable in your life when you have a, a challenge or a question. So that was what had me up on Friday, far before my alarm. 
So here we are, chapter 19 of the book of Judges. In those days, uh, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, and his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there, and on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them, met, two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man arose, uh, rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart, and the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And, then, and when the man and his concubine and his servant rose to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. So there are two things that are glaringly absent from this chapter of the book of Judges. Number one is there is no, no reference to anyone's proper name. So there are no names that exist within this chapter of the book of Judges, which is intentional. Number two, God's God is not mentioned either in some ambiguous reference. He is not mentioned by generic name, Elohim, like we talked about last week. And he certainly is not mentioned as Yahweh in this chapter. Now, what I didn't say is God is not present in this chapter. He is not referenced by name in this chapter. So, we have these uh, various characters, nameless characters, and it's interesting, right, because we have two uh, back-to-back stories where we have this Levite, a Levite who is out uh, sojourning in a similar region. Now, we get this reference to uh, this concubine in uh, verse 1. Now, if you remember back to chapter 8, there was some discussion about, around what is a concubine, so within um, kind of the multi-layered structure of male-female engagements within the ancient Near Eastern world, you have wife, which is a legal uh, person that the, the husband is connected to uh, via marriage and is legally bound 
You have concubine, which is not a legal binding uh, relationship, but it certainly is a marriage-like relationship. So it's, (laughs) I'm not saying what is in my head uh, right now. It it is a relationship that has uh, what looks like all of the trappings of marriage without the legal binding agreement. Is that a derogatory phrase? (laughs) It's not even common law. There is no legal connection. So this person has no legal rights to anything that the Levite man has. And then certainly there is mistress, um, which would be even less um, on that tier or on that Um, classification. We don't know if the man is married. So what we see by him continuing to uh, consider her concubine and for the writer of Judges to refer to her as his concubine, he sees her. Who do you need? She's right there. Uh, He sees her as a piece of property uh, without any sort of uh, benefits. And that's going to continue to come up. If he doesn't have a wife, why is he not making her his wife? And if he does have a wife, what is he doing going out after her when he has a wife uh, and kids at home. So there seems to be this clear delineation that she is viewed as his property and he is missing a piece of his property. Now we get into verse 2, and his concubine was unfaithful to him and she went away from him to his father, her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four months. We can very easily uh, misunderstand this phrase, unfaithful, because oftentimes we're clouded by our own contextual understandings of language where we say if someone is unfaithful in a marriage relationship, it almost always means uh, some sort of adultery that has happened. That is not the case within the Hebrew language around this particular word. So the classification here has a wide spectrum of meanings. It's just unfortunate that the ESV has translated unfaithful. Sidebar, (laughs) the ESV was constructed to put women down and to hold a particular view of women and to perpetuate that view of women through how they translate Scripture. Why do we use the ESV? What, what is the Bible in front of you? Well, God wrote it, and these people translate it, translated it. So... 
there's a whole group of people that, that worked on the ESV translation. I knew none of this when we made the decision to move to the ESV. If we could go back, I would get rid of all of the ESVs and go to a different translation. We're not going back. Does that mean that we accept the translation challenges that are in the ESV? Certainly we don't. If you've noticed, when there is a gender-specific uh, noun, we translate it as male... Siri. So if it says he, or if it says brothers, we will say brothers and sisters. And you're like, well, it doesn't say brothers and sisters. Well, yes, it does. It's just they have chosen to translate the ESV in a particular way. So they've made a decision to use this word. And in my opinion, it's because they want to create a particular feeling that we have towards this female. In the early 2000s, that's a whole other larger conversation. I would be more than happy to get into translation history, why the ESV came, the ESV came about, and why we chose it, and the error of my ways. I confess it was a bad decision. I own that. So please forgive me. Um, I wasn't planning on talking about this. It just struck me as I was, as I was reading. So, um, where were we at? So his concubine has left him, and she has gone back to her father's house. There is an interesting conversation around. You know, when, when we talk about the double intro and the double conclusion, you remember at the very beginning we see uh, a female who's exercising her autonomy and authority and requesting specific land from her father. Here we see a, another female who's choosing to express her autonomy and leaving this person, this man, and going back to her father's house. Was it because she wasn't, he wasn't marrying her and taking her as his legal wife? And so she was like, you know what, man? I'm out of here until you decide that we're going to get married. I'm going to go back to my father's house. We don't know that. What we don't want to do is default to say she committed adultery, and so she's in the wrong because she was unfaithful in an adulterous manner to her husband. Something has happened, and she's left to go back to her father's house. He goes, and he has these four or five days with his father-in-law where, notice, who's doing the eating and the drinking and the being merry? It's the men. She's not mentioned at, at the table. She's not mentioned as participating. Every night, the father, every day, the father's like, hey, let's have a big feast. Let's do some day drinking. And why don't we just hang out? And since you're here, and we've been drinking all day. Why don't you stick around, and we'll continue this into the evening? That's what's going on. I mean, be pleased, and let your heart be merry. This is code for continue to be intoxicated in my house. 
So finally, on the fifth day, he's like, you know what? We got to get out of here. All we're doing is eating and drinking, and we need to be on our way. What we can't miss is clearly this man had a desire to be reunited with her and has gone to great lengths to go to her, to seek her out, and to be reconciled so that they can be reunited together. So the day is drawing to a close. We're not sure exactly when this would be at in the evening, but certainly it's in the evening, and now it's time. They're like, we need to get out of here. Well, for those of you who don't like to drive at night, they're leaving in the evening, and they're about to drive, do some driving towards the evening hours. Lots of deer on the roads, all that stuff. So when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in, and he went in and sat down in the open square of the city. For no one took them into his house to spend the night. So notice here, they're, they're passing this foreign city, which is, oh, by the way, Jerusalem. And the conclusion of the Levite is, if we go into that city, no one's going to take care of us. No one's going to protect us. No one's going to provide us with any sort of hospitality. They are foreigners. We certainly will find refuge and care and love within the, how, within the confines of an Israelite city. So they go an extra uh, about six kilometers, and they enter into the town square. And this is common practice because God has instructed his people to take care of the sojourner. And so, you know, see this throughout the Old Testament. If somebody is traveling, if somebody is sojourning, you take them into your home. So they go into the town square, and somebody would come by them and say, clearly you're not from around here. Why don't you come and eat at our house, and then you can stay at our house, and we will hook you up. I mean, it'd be like, if you're driving through downtown Niswa and you see somebody that clearly is traveling by foot and you're like, roll down the window, you need a place to stay tonight? Yes. Okay, hop in, come to my house. No? No? So, they go into the city. The problem is nobody is taking them in. It's evening. People are coming in from the fields. They're passing by them. And they're sitting there thinking, why is no one helping us? And we know that one of the major downfalls and problems that exist within the nation of Israel at this time is that they have abandoned their commitment to who the people of God are to be. And we get this phrase that keeps coming up. They did what was right in their own eyes. People are not looking out for other people. They're only looking out for themselves. And so all these people are passing by, and the Levite and his concubine and his servant 
have got to be asking themselves, where are we going to stay tonight? And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites, Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him to his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So notice what is happening here. This man uh, comes into town, and, and the writer is very clear and communicates in verse 17. He lifted up his eyes and he saw the traveler. Who doesn't he see? He doesn't see the servant and he doesn't see the concubine. It's as if they're not even there. They have so little value. Yes. Well, right. That precisely. They are definitely there. They are not outside the city. They are all there. He's the only person that seems to have any value in this equation. And we'll pick that up, and you'll see how that gets uh, further accentuated. So, he sees this guy, and it's right in his eyes to take this man in. So we see shades of how the nation of Israel should be functioning, and how they shouldn't be functioning. And the, the man sees him, and we get uh, this fascinating picture. They have everything they need. They have feed for the donkeys. He's like, I don't even need all your hospitality. We just need a place to sleep tonight. Uh, so the concept of complete self-sufficiency is definitely there. And, and so the man says, oh, no. You come and be with me. Verse 21, he brought him into his house. Again, the concubine, the female in the story, and the servant, it's as if they're not even there. Their value is basically erased from the story. But why is it what strikes this individual, this old man who's nameless, to bring these people into his home? Well, first we want to say it's because he has a heart for God and because he knows that as an Israelite, he's to show hospitality to these people. But that's not what he says. He knows that they shouldn't spend the night in the square. So we have this man, this old man, who has wisdom about what takes place in the city. And he says, you aren't going to want to sleep out here tonight. 
That is very important. So they go in. Again, they eat and they drink. And as they were making their hearts merry, verse 22, as they were, again, becoming intoxicated, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to him and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. There is a direct correlation between Genesis 19 in uh, Sodom and what takes place in Sodom and what takes place in Judges. There is literally the exact same word count between that account and this account. The men of the city, we don't know how many of them there are. We know that there is a large group of them. They come and they know that this person is there. And they make demands that the man of the house send him outside so that they can brutalize this man. Within the nation of Israel, as soon as you bring someone into your house, you have social responsibilities to this person. So the man knows, I can't let harm come to this person or it reflects poorly on me. So he comes up with a solution. Notice here, the old man is willing to uphold his social hospitality norms and guidelines in a man-to-man, literally, relationship and discard the females that exist within the house, including his own young daughter. Now, remember the last time we encountered a young virgin daughter and a father who was willing to sacrifice her. We get this again. Because these men only view these women as tools, as pawns, as property to get what they desire out of the life that is before them. The old man is unwilling to sacrifice and give the men of the town what they want. Because he would be doing a disservice to his fellow man. And yet, 
he is willing to give up a female, his own offspring, to save face. Likewise, the Levite is willing to give up his concubine so that he doesn't have to endure the pain and the suffering that awaits him outside the gate. Because again, to these men, these women are pawns and property to be used and discarded. And we cannot miss, this is not happening in a foreign city. Remember, the servant says, hey, boss man, why don't we just stay here in this city? Oh, that's not safe. We need to go on to one of our cities because in our city we'll be safe. How often is it the case that we say, well, that stuff doesn't happen within the church because, well, we're good people. And yet we know without a doubt that sexual violence happens within the church. The question is, how do we respond to that sexual violence when it happens within the church? Because notice, this is happening in the city, and no one is doing anything about it. No one is responding to the blood-curdling screams of this woman who is being sexually abused in their own city. Because the people of God have so abandoned their commitment to God that they only do what benefits them. Let's pretend I don't hear that, because if I hear that, then I need to go do something, and if I go do something, then I'm going to put myself in the way of harm and violence. So I'm going to protect myself, and I'm not going to get involved in this. Again, notice how this works. We don't ever get the name of this person. Her status is a second-rate citizen, so somehow her value is second-rate. So we create names and categories for people so that we don't have to see them for who they are. As true fellow image-bearers of God, so we call people certain things because we can devalue them, and if we devalue them, we don't have to treat them the way God has called us to treat them. The Nazis did it. There's a whole German word to categorize the Jews so that then when they would call them this name and they would massacre them, they didn't feel that bad about it. When we see somebody on the street, 
who is unhoused and seems to be unkept, we look at them and we say, look at that bum. No, this is a child of the God Most High who God created in his image and is a fellow image bearer of God who we need to value with the utmost value. That person is a criminal. No, that person is what put Jesus Christ on the cross. Well, this woman has been unfaithful, and she's a concubine. No, she is a daughter of Yahweh, and there is absolutely no reason why these men who seem to call themselves men and masters are pushing this woman out in the streets to be brutally raped and killed. Because these men have objectified these females so that they can do these things and not feel one ounce of bad feelings about what's happening. We do this. We perpetuate this. This is not an out there problem. And if we aren't actively engaging in the objectification of other human beings, we are complicit in not speaking the truth about how these people are being objectified and abused and discarded because we don't want to upset the apple cart. That is this disgusting picture. These people have relinquished their commitment to God, and sin is reigning supreme. And where there should be safety, there is violence and destruction, and two dudes sleeping the night away. And let's be honest, it's not just two men. It's two men in this house and a man in every other single house in the city who have decided to intentionally not stand up for this woman. And that is the epitome of godlessness. It is vile and it is disgusting and it continues to happen over and over and over and over and over and we could just go on forever. And these are just the stories that we know about. (laughs) Block says, quoting D.N. Farewell, Stories like the rape and dismemberment of the Levites, concubine, in Judges 19 and the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter in Judges 11 show the darkest side of patriarchy yet. The torture and murder of the most vulnerable and innocent for the sake of male honor and pompous religiosity. Guys, 
We have to do better. We, if we are going to identify as followers of Jesus Christ, we have to do better. We have to not only stand up, but stand with the people, the women who have experienced sexual violence. Whether they are inside the church or outside the church. We have to start by not objectifying women. Because that's where it starts. These men have been convinced that these women are there for their own personal pleasure, their own personal property, and their own personal safety. That is not what women are for. God has created women in his image and likeness to be co-equal partners in this thing called life. They're not somehow subservient or subjugated to men. And we do it in the most subtle and nonchalant ways. And I admit, I have done this and I repent And I have contributed to the same problem. And it has to stop someplace. Well, we don't want to look at it. We have to look at it. It's right here in the text. Another problem is we have made it so normalized. Well, it just happens all the time. That's a problem. That's a problem. And when we see a person, another male, subjugating or objectifying women, we have to say, man, knock it off. Or we're the problem. Oh, hey, look at that gal. Dude, no, no. That's where it starts, and this is where it ends. And the question is, when will it end within the people of God rejecting God and doing what we desire and what we see fit because we want what we want when we want it and we don't care who stands in our way and if we have to do it by pushing women out of the way or using them, we're just like the Levite man. Who is the worst person in the story? All of them. All of them. Because the neighbor who sits in his house and doesn't respond to the cry of this woman is equally culpable as the Levite man who shoves her out the door as the horde of men who brutalize and kill her. Everyone who doesn't do anything is culpable. And God is not mentioned in this chapter, but God is grieved to his core. When violence is perpetuated on humanity by human beings, by human beings that are identified as followers of Yahweh, God is wrecked. And we should be wrecked with God. It should break us. 
And unfortunately, far too often, we are the dudes asleep in the house. And look at the language, her, where her master was. He's not her master. He has chosen to keep her under his thumb so that she's not his wife, but he is not her master. The writer wants to further show us that he believes that he has some power and authority over this woman to do whatever he wants to her. And he gets up in the morning. He gets up in the morning. Why is he not waiting by the door, opening the door, seeking, will she ever, he's such a coward, he can't even go out and look for her, but he at least could have waited for her so when her body stumbles back to the doorstep, he could seek to provide first aid, and he is so far inside himself that all he cares about is his own self that he's unwilling to care for another person, especially a woman. And so he wakes up in the morning and he almost steps over her. And her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house, went out to go on his way. Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of his house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. This man is so calloused, so focused on self, self, that he is, he sees her brutalized body. He doesn't care. He does not care. He says, get up. Let us be going. And then because he does not value her humanity, he cuts her body into 12 pieces. And he sends it all over the country. If we want to get a view of what it looks like to be so self-absorbed and to reject God, this is what it looks like. Or to say it differently, to convince oneself that you are so righteous, this man has convinced himself that he is so special in Yahweh's kingdom that he can do whatever he wants. He can treat women however he desires to treat them. And the writer of Judges gives us this picture 
that should make us want to vomit and start a fight right now. Because this, this is the bottom. Every single commentator says this chapter is the worst chapter in the entire Bible. And we should all say, I sure hope so. Because if it gets worse than this, I'm not sure I can handle it. And so, what is the epitome of what is going on here? It's the rejection of the call that God has placed on men's lives to care for other human beings, to stand up and to advocate on behalf of the weak and the vulnerable, the disenfranchised, and those who do not have someone else standing up for them because the culture has said, you don't have to, those people are less than. And God says, that is the bottom of the barrel. May it never, may it never even remotely be the case for us. I just wanted us to sit because we're going to go talk about this. And if we go talk about this and in 45 minutes we go get in our cars and go home and eat our Christmas cookies and drink our eggnog and turn on our Christmas trees and sleep in our comfy little beds. And we are not seared (laughs) by the reality of this. This didn't just happen back then. This has continued to happen. And it breaks God's heart, and it breaks our heart, and it should break our heart, and we have to be different. We either need to stop calling ourselves followers of Jesus Christ and live like the world, or we need to be different. Go to your groups.